Man, Jay, I can't believe Moonstar was Mirage all this time. You, uh, really didn't see that one coming, huh, Miles? How could I have? She was going by her own last name. But what if it was a red herring? It wasn't. But Danny was in Asgard. She got kicked out. How? You know, I am not actually sure. But really, it was for the best. In the timeline where she stayed, things didn't work out that great for her. Oh. Did she die? Not really. Well, that's good, right? She became Hella. What?! I'm Jay Editon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 278 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to us continuing to cover a somewhat random assortment of comics. This is sort of a trend at this point, uh, basically until we get to Age of Apocalypse. Things should be significantly more sorted out at that point. Man, you know what I want to do with Age of Apocalypse? I want to do it all at once. I want to do just like an incredibly long episode where we cover all of it. Jay, that episode would be like 12 hours long and we would probably lose our minds about a third of the way through. No, so here's what I'm imagining. Like we could we could we could do it as some kind of benefit or marathon or something. We could crowdfund it. We fly out to a hotel in the middle of nowhere, possibly that one clown hotel. We get like a big bottle of whiskey, we get a huge amount of coffee, and we just go straight through. I mean, it would make for an interesting epitaph, at least. Memorable. They died talking about the X-Men at a clown hotel. Probably Summers Brothers. <laughs> they died as they lived. Speaking not at all of that, I was on a podcast. I was on an episode of Battle of the Atom that should be out by the time this episode comes out, talking about people turning into dinosaurs. At a clown motel? Not that I recall, but memory's never been my strongest suit. There's been a lot of, of people turning into dinosaurs talk in, in our neck of the woods lately. I, I wonder if it's, if, if it's coincidence or like if, if the world is trying to tell us something. Hmm. Trying to tell us we should turn into dinosaurs. Or turn others into dinosaurs, yeah. Or one than the other. Follow your dinosaur heart. I will. Um, but anyway, if you like to hear about X-Men or people turning into dinosaurs or hear me or Zach from Battle of the Atom talk, then you should totally listen to that because it was a lot of fun. So that brings us to today and to what we're actually covering on this show, which unfortunately does not involve anyone turning into dinosaurs. It does, however, involve two annuals, both annuals number three of X-Force and of Adjectiveless X-Men. I forget sometimes that those books started right around the same time, and so their numbers tend to be ridiculously lined up. I mean, we're used to that these days, but back in the day, like X-Factor and Uncanny X-Men and New Mutants were all in vastly different places numbering-wise. Well, it's not just their issue numbers. It's that they hit, they, they've had the same number of annuals, which really just means they started in the same, you know, calendar year. Still, it's rather novel. So, which should we cover first, X-Force or X-Men? <laughs> You know, I don't think it actually makes a huge difference, so I am going to uh, just go with, with the easy answer and say, in alphabetical order, it's X-Force. X-Force it is. In that case, how about a bit of X-Force background? Well, 
I don't know if it's the X-Force that we really need to give background on because they're not actually involved in this story. Oh, right. So, uh, in that case, how about a bit of Mutant Liberation Front background? Alright, the MLF, the Mutant Liberation Front, not to be confused with the Multilateral Force or any of the other things those acronyms can represent, is a mutant terrorist organization founded by the benived time-traveling clone Strife. It was founded by him, but then he died on the moon, and a long-haired flamboyant silhouette man named Rainfire took over. I still maintain that Rainfire definitely carries an electric guitar with him everywhere. Yep, or at least a silhouette of one. Shortly thereafter, the MLF gained another new member, Moonstar. Now, Moonstar is, quote-unquote, secretly former new mutant Danielle Moonstar, a.k.a. Mirage, but it's, it, it's really obvious. It's, it's not a secret. Also, a.k.a. Psyche, also a.k.a. Spellbinder, everyone forgets that she had as many codenames as Kitty Pride. Maybe the real secret is uh, which one of her codenames is the real one. Maybe... In a fight with X-Force, each team lost a member. X-Forcer Sunspot and MLFer Locus were teleported to parts unknown in a freak super accident. The teams had also lost a few other members in, in the recent past as well, but um, these are the most recent losses. And the situation also raises some questions. Why is Danielle Moonstar working with the MLF? What actually happened to Sunspot? Is Sunspot Rainfire? We know Sunspot's not Rainfire because we've read ahead and did a cold open about it. But readers at the time didn't. I'm not sure if the writers at the time did. Well, from what I understand, they intended him to be future Sunspot. Eh, you know, intent only gets you part way. But let's talk about all of those things, because they form the backbone of a surprisingly good story about the MLF. I should note, before we go into this, that... We discovered when discussing this last week that I'm not really physically capable of doing Farrell's voice anymore. That's true. Maybe we can just summarize anything she says that's important. I can do it. I can just do it lower. That could work. I mean, she got evil. Maybe that comes with a lower voice. I don't know. Or, or maybe we can get Matt to raise the pitch. I, I, I like the idea of her ending up like a really raspy chipmunk. Raspy chipmunk Maria Kaya Santos. I feel like you shouldn't call her that to her face. She will definitely murder you. Feed you to her pigeons. That brings us to X-Force Annual number three, In Deep. Written, of course, by Fabian Nesieza, penciled by Mike Wairingo, inked by John Lowe, and colored by Arianne. Hey, Mike Wairingo, he did the Rogue miniseries. I kind of like his art. He did. I think he's a much, much better fit for the Rogue miniseries than he is for this story, though. Like, he does it well, but he's just, he, it's not the art style that I would have gone with had I had it been up to me. See, I actually kind of like the contrast between the visuals and the tone. I think it works thematically, but um, we'll probably talk a little bit more about that later. For now, though, what we get is a whole lot of narration from Danielle Moonstar. She's the narrator of this entire story. And what she starts with pretty much sums up the way it's going to go. I really thought this was going to get easier. That every day, a bit less of the guilt would bleed through. I was wrong. We haven't learned at this point why Danny is with the MLF. We know there are a bunch of jerks that murder a lot of people, and that's not usually her style. But we also know that she refused Cannonball's offer to quit the MLF and join X-Force. This story is all about her motivations and her conflicts, and I think it handles it really well. I was prepared to be bored out of my mind by an MLF story. I ended up loving this one. Not only her motivations, but her terrible, terrible journaling habits. 
Yeah, if you're a secret double agent on a bad guy team, then maybe having an audio journal in a big cavernous room where people can sneak up on you from behind is a bad plan. That's illustrated by big screens as you're talking about things. I mean, it's a superhero comic. We can just assume that everything is writ a little bit larger, even when it's a terrible plan. Ah, <sighs> Danny. Really thought you were better than that. Well, what she is good at is training the remains of the MLF, which consists entirely of Forearm, Wildside, and Feral. Like you said earlier, Jay, this team has suffered some losses. Reaper, I thought, was still with the team at this point, but he's just not here. They mentioned he's, he was lost in battle, but I don't remember that happening. We will, however, see him, Sienna Blaze, and Juggernaut cross into the Malibu Ultraverse in 1995. I never read those comics. They look bizarre. I don't actually know anything about it, but I like to believe that it all takes place in the city of Malibu. I mean, that seems likely. Yeah, that's probably the case. And when they say they're crossing over into that universe, it just means that they're going there? Yeah, they just take a bus, you know? Yeah. So the MLF's current base is actually on the Animator's Island from the New Mutants chapter of Fall of the Mutants, which is really heavy given all the stuff Danny went through there. I mean, that's where Cypher died. Yeah, damn. Their previous base was on Octopusheim, of course, so it's kind of like the MLF is just going through this greatest hits of weird, mostly forgotten X-Men locations. No, they're working their way through tiny islands. Oh, oh, yeah, that's probably it. That makes sense. So I mentioned Danny's terrible, terrible journaling. She's been keeping an audio log, um, which she records in an enormous cavernous room that appears to be like their central control room. With, with pictures and things up on the big screens, and how she has not gotten caught at this yet, I have no idea. But at least we learn a little bit more about what she's up to, which is specifically that she infiltrated the MLF to save or maybe redeem Rainfire, a character we know almost nothing about. She'll later be retconned to have been there on behalf of S.H.I.E.L.D. That's less exciting. We also learn that Danny is sort of the domino to Rainfire's cable. She's the co-leader of the team, and she is in control when Rainfire's out. As far as we know, there are not baths involved in this particular or organization, though. That's probably for the best. It might put out Rainfire's fire, and then he would just be Rain. One thing I like is that now that we have it officially confirmed that Moonstar is indeed Danielle Moonstar, we get a lot of callbacks to her past, and that adds so much to the poignancy here, and it also makes it a lot more interesting as we learn that she's a double agent. So she keeps mentioning things like how she was trained by Nightcrawler and Wolverine, she mentions little bits and pieces of her interactions with the former New Mutants, and I also like that she has a new costume. Not just because her old costume was god-awful, because, oh, it was, it was so terrible— but I like that her new costume is very reminiscent of her old New Mutants uniform. It's this yellow tunic and boots over blue-black leggings and long gloves, but she still has her MLF mask on from before. So it's a nice visual signifier and reminder of her dual allegiance, you know? Speaking of dual allegiances, she used to be an Asgardian Valkyrie, and she fell somehow and everything changed. One of the things that changed was her horse, formerly Brightwind, who had been a, a white pegasus, and is now still winged, but is all black with bat wings. And it's pretty badass. Yeah, now Brightwind is named Darkwind. I really appreciate the utter lack of effort that uh, Norse mythology apparently put into this particular transformation. We still don't know why Danny fell from Asgard, do we? Is that ever explained? I'm not sure that it is. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. But Danny's narration continues as she wanders around Animator's Island. The island is so spooky at night. 
like a bad sci-fi B-movie from the 50s that Sam and Bobby would stay up to watch when we all should have been sleeping. We were so young, but it's only been a few years. Why do I feel so old now? There's just so much bittersweet regret to everything about Danny, and it works so well because she's this character that has always made the hard decisions even when they super suck for her. And so getting to get inside her head after just seeing her in that terrible outfit fighting with the MLF for so long is great. Yeah, this is the first time she's really felt like herself um, since, since reappearing with them. Honestly, since even before that, because her last major appearance in the New Mutants as Guardian Wars had her mostly possessed the whole time. Oh damn, you're right. That was unfortunate. As Danny wanders the island, she hears a character we haven't seen in a long, long time. She hears Birdbrain. Because remember? Birdbrain stayed on the animator's island after Fall of the Mutants. Yeah, and Danny is is tearing up as as she hears him but and and realizes that he's he's too scared of the ways she's different to actually approach her. Danny strong friend different And yeah, Birdbrain never actually comes on panel. That's all we get. Like you'd think this would be an opportunity for why Ringo to draw this character that hasn't been seen in ages who had kind of a cool character design even if he was basically Bird Jar Jar, but no, the fact that we don't even see Birdbrain, I think, really gets across just how much Danny has lost because we've lost that too. Which, again, it's Birdbrain. It's not the biggest loss in the world. But still, it's sad. Not just has lost, but is continually choosing to sacrifice. Yeah. So just as Danny's making another unwise audio entry, she is interrupted by Rainfire. And Rainfire's got a new mission for the MLF. The MLF are going to be teaming up with a very small revolutionary contingent in China. This is a group called Three Piece, spelled P-E-A-C-E, and it's a pun. Um, they're mutant revolutionaries. They seem like good folks. They want to rescue mutants who are, are currently incarcerated um, and and try living in harmony in something that very consciously echoes Xavier's dream. Very much so, yeah. But given that their immediate goal is kind of what the MLF does, they rescue mutants and murder all the humans guarding them, it sort of lines up. Now, we did see Rainfire meet up with these three earlier, wearing a disguise o trench coat over his silhouetted form, but because he wasn't wearing his headpiece and the wig that is apparently attached, we noticed that Rainfire, when he's out of costume, has short, curly hair. So, okay, let's go through this. Short, curly hair, blank white eyes on a black silhouetted body. I mean, it's becoming pretty damn clear that this dude is supposed to be Sunspot. But does he have a winning smile and easy charm? I don't think so. And he hasn't mentioned Magnum P.I. even once. Yeah, it's no Bobby of mine. Danny and Three Piece try to subdue the soldiers who are in this facility. Farrell and Rainfire are just murdering everybody. And Danny starts to realize Rainfire is killing the people he's killing partially to make a point specifically to her, to make it, to make it clear that she can't afford to be soft based on the goals that they have. Rainfire is actually kind of interesting here. He's a true believer. Like, he really does seem to believe that violence and fear are necessary in order for mutants to survive. He's not just a mustache-twirling villain. I mean, we don't even know if he has a mustache in that silhouette. Although, Bobby did always like Magnum P.I., so I choose to assume so. I really like the Collective Man, and I'm 
I don't know if he's ever met multiple men, but I feel like they'd probably have a lot to talk about a lot of times. Right, the collective man. He's a member of Three Piece. He actually first appeared in Contest of Champions, which is kind of the Street Fighter II, the world warrior of the Marvel Universe. Like, every nation had its own incredibly stereotypical superhero, and the collective man was China's because, you know, collective. Huh, you'd think it would work the opposite way, that you'd have you'd have a bunch of people who collectively formed one hero if if that's what they're going for. It's, you know, a collectivist metaphor. That probably would have been a lot better, it's true. Eh, well, what can you do? Ironically, that's basically the power set of Team America. Oh, good point. And America's so fiercely individualistic, it's really kind of backwards, isn't it? Maybe that's what happened to Team America. Maybe they defected. Oh, uh, to China? That stands to reason. Anyway, so this first mission was to get information on where the mutant prisoners were being held. The second mission is to go to the actual jail that's holding them. And perhaps unsurprisingly, Rainfire betrays Three Piece to the Chinese government. Apparently the Chinese government made the MLF a better offer of some sort. That's never really clear, but Whatever. The point is, Three Piece runs away, and they end up running right to where Rainfire asked Danny to keep watch. And this is a test. Rainfire is clearly testing Danny to see if she's loyal, to see if she will turn in these revolutionaries to the Chinese government, or if she'll let them go because she's really still a new mutant at heart. She's really still a new mutant at heart, but she's a canny new mutant, so she has them knock her out so it looks like they overpowered her. Later on, though, Rainfire doesn't really seem to buy it. I think you test me, old friend. I think you are still trying far too hard to play both sides of the fence. Hardened soldier and conscientious objector all at once. He really clearly knows that she's there with another purpose. And she knows that he knows and is trying to figure out why he's playing this game and never quite gets there. One interesting thing visually here, though, is that Rainfire is out of costume and, in fact, shirtless, although he is in the shadows. So we see that he's got dark skin. We see that hair again. Like, it is so obvious that this is Roberto da Costa. Or, you know, a slime creature partially cloned from Roberto da Costa. As the case may foolishly retconnedly later be, it's true. But I like this pairing. I wish we got to see more of this dynamic and more of this Danny in general, honestly. Like, Bobby and Danny always had this antagonistic but respectful and sort of fun dynamic. And to see it turned into something so serious and tense actually really, really works. And I think it adds to that wistful, sad quality, that feeling of loss. Yeah, it's especially interesting looking at this and comparing it to the direction that Bobby ended up actually going in canon. Oh, yeah, I mean, look at him right now. It's a little bit different. Or especially if you go back a few years to the era where he bought AIM and ran it as a businessman. I mean, it's still very much that Bobby with that degree of confidence now. And the story ends with Danny sitting at her giant diary computer with her arms around her knees looking really small as tears well in her eyes. So we talked about why Ringo and what we thought of his art on this story. For me, it works. For me, the contrast of the sort of dark themes and all the death and all the heavy stuff with the brighter, simplified, almost a little cartoony art and the bright colors, I think that works because that's sort of what's going on for Danny. She has memories of this not necessarily happy-go-lucky past, but certainly happy-er past, and she's in the midst of this shit right now. And so, I don't know, I kind of dig it. 
She looks so much like Rogue, though. She does look a little like Rogue. Yeah, why Ringo does have a habit of uh, not drawing faces that are all that differentiated. And his Rogue is so defining for me that it's hard not to see that reflected here. That's fair. So, yeah, that's our story. That's our X-Force story that X-Force doesn't appear in at all. And it was so good to get a story with Danielle as the main character again. I have missed her so much. It's been ages. She's such a good character and was so, so underused in the time leading up to this. Well, we will see more of her, and we'll also see some retcons that basically deconstruct the premise of this entire story. So, uh, there's that. But this is an annual, so we get a backup story, too. It's called Siren Song. It's written by Jim Kruger, penciled by Arnie Jorgensen, inked by Bud LaRosa and John Lowe, and colored by Dana Morsehead. And it's a weird one. It's got engaging writing, it's got beautiful art, and not a whole lot to say. Yeah, that's something I think that these two annuals have in common, is that they've both got Cassidy backup stories with those features. Both Cassidy backup stories with those features, written by Jim Kruger, in fact. Huh. This story is set during the time when Siren was staying in Cassidy Keep trying to figure out all of her family stuff, so around X-Force 31. And she is awakened by some truly glorious narration. Heaven wages war with itself. Thunder roars its demands for surrender while lightning flashes its brilliant defiance. In other words, it was a dark and stormy night. I kind of want Jim Kruger to write some Excalibur. Kind of want Jim Kruger to just write my alarm clock. (laughs) That would be pretty amazing. So yes, Teresa is awakened by that narration, and also by the sound of a lullaby coming from somewhere under the keep that makes her miss her mother, who she doesn't really remember because she died so young. I was genuinely surprised that this did not turn out to be leprechauns. I know! I know, I really wanted leprechauns to be here, and to be fair, we are going to see the Cassidy Keep leprechauns again, but, uh, not here. Instead, as Siren follows this lullaby to the base of the cliff, and then Sonic screams open some rocks to find a hidden door, she finds Murphy Keep, another keep hidden under Cassidy Keep that it's implied fell at some point, or was destroyed, or something. And there's this old woman singing to an empty crib, And it's kind of unclear what's going on. The woman seems to be delusional. She seems to think that her husband and her baby are still here, not that she's been isolated for multiple decades. She gives Teresa a pep talk about how the people around you can disappear at any time, so you should really connect with them while you can, which I guess fits this era where Teresa's been kind of isolated from X-Force, but that's it. Then Teresa goes home, and when she takes that long-haired, sexy lawyer guy, Calvin, who was in number 31, to the base of the cliff to see it the next day, it's gone. And so that's the story. I feel like there's a message here, and only about a third of it was explained. Well, she knows in her heart that it's real, so she's going back to X-Force, which is not the logic I'd, I would have pulled out of it. But, you know, I'm also not the, the heir of Cassidy Keep, so... Teresa, it's so good to see you back on the team. What made you come back? Well, there was this old lady who was probably a ghost, singing to an imaginary baby. She had some insights about family. Teresa, maybe you should go to Cassidy Keep to clear your head for a while longer. Dude, this is the kind of thing that happens at Cassidy Keep. Good point. Welcome back. How are the leprechauns? Numerous and belligerent. And that is X-Force Annual number three. 
let's talk about some X-Men. Oh, I'm excited for this one, because this is a Shinobi Shaw story. It so very sexily is. Now, as you may recall, Shinobi Shaw is the son of Sebastian Shaw, the former Black King of the Hellfire Club, whose place Shinobi has usurped. He has amazing hair, and he definitely knows how sex works and does it a lot of times with everybody. That he does. He's also doing his best to repopulate the thoroughly murdered membership of the Lord's Cardinal of the Hellfire Club, but he hasn't had much success. Shinobi recently asked Archangel and Psylocke to join, but they said no, beat him up, and explained to him why he has no friends. So Shinobi must have figured, since recruiting the X-Men hasn't worked, maybe he should try mentally manipulating a powerful female member of their team, because that worked so well for Mastermind back in the day, right? In Shinobi's defense, mentally manipulating Storm into abandoning her morals and falling in love with you and becoming your evil queen is a time-honored villainous tradition. And that brings us to X-Men Annual number three, Heart and Soul. This is written by Ian Edgerton, penciled by Gene Ha, inked by everyone on the damn planet, and colored by Joe Rosas. And the cover of this issue heavily, heavily implies that Storm is about to get seduced by a statue of a giant lady, which does not happen, and I want my money back. All she wants to do is see her turn into a giant woman. I feel like Storm would get along really well with the Crystal Gems. Yeah, she totally would. She actually right? reminds me a lot of Garnet. I can see that. Anyway, the story is called Heart and Soul, and it has Claremont vibes like, whoa, and it ain't just the title. As I mentioned, this is the classic A Supervillain Tries to Seduce Storm story, um, of which we have seen many over the years, and will continue to see many over the years, because that's what supervillains do. Now, our villain this annual, as I mentioned, is none other than Shinobi Shaw. And, um... I gotta say, Jean Ha is a great choice for the art on this story. There's a delicate romantic feel to his line work that fits the tone of this and Shinobi's character, I think, really, really well. I feel like Jean Ha's depiction of Shinobi Shaw is how Shinobi Shaw sees himself, and I really like that in this story. I love that apparently Shinobi Shaw just straight up sees himself as Vampire Hunter D. I mean, pretty much. D's pretty sexy. Yeah, no, no. Sh Shinobi Shaw is totally a sexy anime villain. That is that is his look, which again goes with the fact that, that his, his previous vibe was fashion lesbian. Well, there we go. Jean Ha's storm is so good. She reminds me, and some of this is definitely the colors, and a lot of it is the inks, but of Barry Windsor Smith's storm. I would agree, yeah. Different styles, but that same level of just vitality to everything. And we saw some of that certainly in Jean Ha's Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, just bringing in such humanity and physicality to all of our main characters. And that carries through right here, but less post-apocalyptically. Well, and again, some of that is definitely is definitely the inking and just sort of the very, very, very fine line work, which is, is um, Windsor Smith's signature. So... Shinobi starts his, his villainous plot by st sending Storm a bunch of roses on which she cuts her finger, that's important, and a dinner invitation. Okay, wait a minute. So we see Archangel bring the roses to Storm. Archangel's the one that finds them. Do you think that those roses were intended for Archangel? I mean, we know Shinobi's kind of got a thing for him. I don't know. No, I, I think he was going after Storm at this point. Or it could be that he just got the roses and was like, well... 
I guess if Warren's turned me down, I'll send them to Storm. They've got a card that's just got Warren's name crossed out and Storm's written in. <laughs> right. I mean, it's probably for the best that Shinobi doesn't mention that. Nobody likes hearing that they're the plan B. Anyway, Storm totally has Shinobi's number, and it's great. And and um, she refers to him at one point as, I believe, a sheep in wolf's clothing, which is a fantastic and very accurate burn. <laughs> But she's also kind of into the idea, like she's titillated by the concept of a date with Shinobi Shaw. The narration describes it as a prospect of dark delight harking back to previous experiences, which I don't understand. Like, I don't think she and Shinobi have really ever exchanged more than a sentence. Was it talking about her days as a punk? Punks aren't dark, exactly. They're just punk. Yeah, but, you know, she had fun with someone the X-Men kind of vaguely disapproved of, so I figure that's probably maybe what she's referring back to. Okay, I guess I'll buy that. She's also been having a really rough day and sort of feels the need to shake that off. Um, She's been seeing refugee kids on the news, which made her think of her own childhood and question whether she's really making the difference she could be as a member of the X-Men. And she heads off to dinner. Uh, you mentioned punk. um, And she dresses up in an outfit that is absolutely punk era and specifically Yukio punk era Storm. This is such a specific thing, but I love the way Jean Ha draws leather clothing. Like, the way it moves and folds and reflects light when there's light nearby or shows moisture when it's wet looks incredibly realistic, and I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. It has it has weight and substance and folds and drapes drape to it that work for the material that it is, which is is so rare in comics and doubly rare in superhero comics. Um, and and Storm's compatriots are, are kind of shocked by this, especially Professor X, and Storm gives him a brief speech about his condescending paternalistic bullshit, and she's off. Like, she's clearly harsher than is entirely called for, but she's right. This reminds me a great deal of a story we covered very recently, where Kitty gets a box of clothing and a sword coming out of her chest, and she becomes evil sexy Kitty and starts acting like a jerk to her friends, even when she is occasionally right. These stories came out right around the same time, and I realize being evil and sexy is totally an X-Men trope, but goddamn, what are the odds? Well, it's a trope that goes way, way beyond X-Men. And this isn't... Storm's not evil, she's more impatient. And I think it's important there, because... What Shinobi is, does to her, the, the ways that he mind controls her, aren't about changing her or what she thinks or who she is. They're about getting rid of her inhibitions. That's true, yeah. And we certainly have seen Storm play with that concept uh, a number of times, but especially with Yukio. Now, that's not something he's going to tell her, though. His, his spiel is that post-psychic brain knifing, he's taken a turn for the idealistic. And... What he wants to do is set up a secret cabal acting in the best interest of humanity and mutants to basically be the shadow government of the world. Interestingly, what he's suggesting is basically what the Illuminati are going to be, but they're sincere about it, and he's not. The thing is, the Hellfire Club would actually be perfectly positioned to do something like that. Like, it's a really good idea. If only Shinobi Shaw weren't Shinobi Shaw. It's not a good idea. It's, I mean... It's really not a good idea. Oh, I'm not saying it's ethical. I'm just saying if anyone were to do something like that, the Hellfire Club would probably be a good choice in terms of effectively doing it. It's a potentially effective idea, but no, I don't really think that Earth needs to be ruled by a secret self-proclaimed cabal of, like, four ultra-rich people. I mean, ideally not. But if it was... 
if it was, you say, as if we're not, you know, anyway, um, anyway, this, this is, as I've been alluding, a trap. Um, the thorns on the roses and now Storm's meal were laced with micro neurotoxins that will suppress her morals and quote, unleash her darker nature, making her more impulsive. Also, they kill butterflies. And there's a butterfly, like, sipping at the edge of her champagne glass at the beginning of the scene. We see it dead after Shinobi's talking about the neurotoxins afterwards. And Miles, I know this will not mean anything to you, but for those listeners who are there with me, all I could think was Cloudy Drink Kills Frog. What? Cloudy Drink Kills Frog. Okay. It's it's from Sex House, and I having having said that... I I realized that I really should have been making Sex House references pretty much since we started talking about Shinobi Shaw months ago on the podcast, and I'm so ashamed because it is it is kind of the perfect pairing. Maybe we can George Lucas the whole thing and just retroactively insert Sex House references into all of our old episodes. That would be kind of appropriate. Um, I, I feel like I should explain what Sex House is for those of you unfamiliar with it, who tragically include Miles as far as I know. I mean, I've heard of it. I just haven't seen it. Okay, so a few years ago, um, fairly large number of years ago, The Onion had this like one summer of amazing video content. And one of the things they did was a mini series that was was nominally a reality tv show called sex house but which took some very different turns over its actual course and basically turned into um an incredibly weird riff on no exit it's i i think i recommend it it's 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 there's definitely viewer discretion advised and there are definitely some content warnings um there there uh, there's not, you know, any explicit, any explicit sex in it, but, um, there's a lot of other stuff and it's, it's, it's pretty dark kind of thing you'd like if you like that kind of thing. It's really amazing though. It's, it's, it's kind of, in some ways, I think it's kind of the best cultural artifact of the last decade. That's a, that's a bold claim. And I'm excited about everything you just said. I need to see this. I mean, it's been a pretty fucked up decade. Yeah, that's a, that's a real good point. I mean, our show is an artifact of the last decade. I think our show is pretty good. I think. But I don't think that our show encapsulates so much of the feel of the last decade as Sex House does. Yeah, yeah. Just the X-Men stuff. And the Dracula stuff. Anyway, I'll stick a link to it in the visual companion. Um, yeah, I have I have no idea how to how to describe this properly without spoiling it. Um, if 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 you have concerns, maybe look that stuff up. But it's quite a thing. Anyway, uh, the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club in Sebastian Shaw's house, possibly also named Sex House. Um, so Storm is intrigued but doesn't agree. And Professor X has concerns. He 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 notices that she's she just she seems harsher. She seems colder. And she's she she for her part goes to bed and immediately has nightmares, which leads to one of, I think, the most important object lessons that a comics artist can get, which is that you need to think a lot when you're trying to express something with body language and facial expressions about what else those might evoke. Because if you're an artist and you're drawing someone having a nightmare, 
and you're not aware of the possibility that you might accidentally draw someone who looks like they're having a sex dream, you're going to draw someone who looks like they're having a sex dream. I very specifically remember you encountering that in your editorial days. Yeah, I managed to cause that to to not happen or at least get modified slightly or at least for a mouth to get closed. It, it was there wasn't time to actually redo the whole picture, but there was at least that. <laughs> well done. That was that was way back. That was in my like assistant editorial days, which is why I didn't see it until it was already at that point. <laughs> Still. Anyway, 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 um, Storm dreams that that someone is cutting out her mutant powers so they can give them to the refugee kid on TV because she hasn't been making good enough use for them because she could have helped the world in so many ways. But now she's a superhero and she's just kind of doing X-Men things instead of massively massively revitalizing climate systems and and sweeping away whole armies with hurricanes i really like this scene not only is it a terrifying scene visually i mean she's in this filthy operating chamber with these doctors with their clothes covered in blood and they're being all judgmental and there's the the emaciated child looking at her with haunted eyes but it's also a good thing to talk about with storm because yeah she's a superhero but realistically she could do so much good in the world with her powers. I mean, you know, sweeping away armies, that could be a little weird depending on which army she chose to sweep away. You know, it gets complicated. But ending droughts, stuff like that, I'm glad we're addressing this. I wish we were addressing it in a story that had more to do with continuity or was a little bit better written. Well, it has been addressed in, in stories that were better written and had more to do with continuity. Um, this one, though, is mostly about Storm having having a sexy crisis. So she flips out and flies over to to Sex House, where she meets the rest of the new Hellfire Club. Who have we got for our audience, Miles? We have Benedict Kine. He has neural disruption powers. We have Benazir Kaur, who can give people cancer, or I think she can accentuate their diseases. I don't know. And we have Reva Page, whose screams do neural scrambling stuff. Hey, Reva Page! Yeah, Reva Page is a name you might recognize if you were watching the show The Gifted, because despite having only ever appeared in this one annual, she was the big bad of that, or one of the big bads of that series. Yeah, she uh, looks completely different in this series, but her powers are the same, and uh, she has no lines, so I don't know if her personality is the same, but here she is. That was a really neat little link. I can't remember the actress's name, but but the, specifically the way Riva in the comics is styled reminds me a ton of um, Penny Pretty from Buckaroo Banzai. You are not wrong. It, one of the things about being face blind is that you notice a lot of weird incidental details pretty hard. <laughs> well, Shinobi Shaw spills all of his details because he's kind of new at this whole villain thing. His timing is terrible, man. Like, he... He, he just can't hold back his villain speech any longer. He's giving it, like, half an act too early. I've freed you from the shackles of conscience and morality, given rein to those deep-seated feelings you'd buried deep inside you, such as your growing sense of alienation from your fellow X-Men. This works so well. With our ongoing conceit that Shinobi Shaw's big plot is try to convince someone to tell him what sex is. I know, because if his actual plot is to make Storm Dark to do dark things, he is going about it terribly. This is awful. Like, you drug somebody and tell them that you're a good guy, and then you wait for the drugs to wear off and you tell them that you're a bad guy? What is that supposed to accomplish? Well, they haven't worn off entirely. They just haven't 
taken as much effect as they need to 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 do stuff. But he's decided he's going to cut straight to the chase and inject, inject more drugs straight into her brain. Fortunately, Professor X comes to the remote rescue and also manages to not only get Storm's mind back in rough order, but to reboot her powers, which the drugs had inhibited. And the X-Men show up and there's a big fight. I love how bored Reva looks. Yeah, I mean, you feel like she's just sort of phoning it in. She's like, I didn't even get a single line in this story, so whatever. I guess I'll yell half-heartedly and scramble people neurally, and then I'm just out of here. And I am never showing up to one of these parties again. I'm not sure many of these characters are showing up again. I'm not sure any of them. Sh- I mean, obviously, Shinobi shows up again, but do, do the rest of these Hellfire Club people? I looked it up. Yes, yes, they do. So Benedict Kine appears one more time uh, when he's dueling Shinobi Shaw for control of the Hellfire Club so they could settle their argument about whether the Hellfire Club should kill J. Jonah Jameson. That was in a Spider-Man story. Huh. And Benazir Cower appears one more time, but not in the comics. She appears in the Super Nintendo game Wolverine Adamantium Rage. She's a boss, but for some reason her name is Fugue, she's wearing a hooded cloak, and she seems to have Reva Page's powers. But it's still very clearly Benazir Cower, according to the game. So, there you go. The long and storied history of this incarnation of the Hellfire Club. At least Reva got to be a really cool villain on a pretty cool show. Storm manages to get Shinobi down and refrains from killing him, even though she clearly could. She does, however, tell him, You were wrong about everything. Leaving him to stare out into the night through his penthouse window and wonder what the hell sex is. Poor Shinobi Shaw. He tries so hard and he'll never, ever know. So, Jay... Why does Shinobi target Storm? I mean, like we mentioned before, he barely knows her. Well, he he says specifically that it's because she willingly joined the Hellfire Club before, so he figures she'll be easier to corrupt into doing so again. Yeah, I guess that is true. She was half of its White King. I was thinking maybe in trying to figure out sex, he was just following the suave, sexy villain playbook of falling in love with Storm and trying to mind control her like you alluded to earlier. I mean, Sexy Dracula did it, and Sexy Dracula clearly knows the most about sex. Oh, so you're, you're thinking that maybe he thinks that, that sex is actually just mind controlling Storm. Or at least he thinks it's directly related. He'll never know. This annual, like X-Force, has a backup story. This one's called A Moment of Silence. It's written by Jim Kruger, with art by Steve Yoel, and colors by Dana Morshead. And, man, I love old cop banshee stories. There are very few of them, but I love them. There's not really much to this one. I mean, I feel like you could sum up the plot in about a sentence and a half. I can. Banshee goes to say goodbye to his old Interpol buddy who sacrificed himself to Hydra to save Sean and to save the world from a Sean under Hydra control. Oh. The end. Well, there you go. I think the story has a solid premise, though, because, you know, this weapons inventor turns himself and his weapons knowledge into Nazis, essentially, just so they don't catch a mutant who he thinks may be dangerous. The idea of mutants as weapons even more powerful than anything science could create as this almost divine destructive force, that's a kind of cool concept. But just like the previous story by the same writer, there's just not room to explore it. It, it is a nice brief, brief Sean Cassidy window, though, which I like, and, and the, that he specifically goes to 
find his friend who he knows won't recognize him because he's been so thoroughly brainwashed as he's dying in a Hydra facility just to be there. It's really lovely. Yeah, that's Sean Cassidy. Man, the increased focus on Banshee in this era reminds me of how much I like the character. And... 90s Banshee is very different than 70s Banshee. There really wasn't much of 80s Banshee in general, but they're both great characters. Silver Age Banshee? Well, okay, he was kind of a flying stereotype, but he was fun too, I guess. Man, you know what I like? What's that? I like our listeners, and they've got questions. Specifically, Dan has asked via email, Miles, how do you reconcile the portrayals of technology in comics and other fiction with your knowledge of how tech actually works? That is a really good question. So I should clarify before I start, my job is largely end-user based, which means the tech I work with is pretty specific, like some of the more conceptual, complicated stuff I don't get a lot of experience with. The impression I've always gotten is that, in, in terms of your depth of knowledge, is that you know enough pretty much always to recognize when people are doing it wrong, but not necessarily to describe how it could have been done right. That's often the case, yeah. So, I guess the short answer to this question is, just repeat to yourself, it's just a show, I should really just relax. That said, there is a right way and a wrong way to do tech in over-the-top fiction like superhero comics, or science fiction, or whatever. The best example of the wrong way that I can think of is one of the William Gibson X-Files episodes. I want to say- Yes! I was thinking about that too. It's so bad. Right. I want to say it was first-person shooter. It might have been Kill Switch. I don't know. But this is an example of doing stuff that's pretty plausible, but doing it wrong. There is this one shot where the lone gunmen are trying to hook up a new hard drive into a motherboard's Molex connector to do some kind of a task that that would make no sense for, and they're doing it while the computer's on, which would, like, fry everything. no, that's not how you do anything, and these are characters that would totally know this sort of thing. It kind of reminds me of back in the day when I was doing PC repair when I was much younger, and I was on this local TV spot about some new virus that was out in the wild, and while we were talking, the reporter asked me to just do something computery. <laughs> and so I'm like, well, I guess I could unscrew the screws from the bottom of this laptop. I mean, it has nothing to do with that virus, and we're talking about me fixing it, but uh, I don't think you want to just look at a progress bar of a malware scanner. That's not very active. Uh. Oh, man. <laughs> Something computery. All right. Okay. So, so, so that's what, what are some others? What are, what are, what are, what are other things like really get to you? I want to know. I, I, I know I think a lot of your tech pet peeves, but I want to know the ones that have like stuck. Okay. So the best worst example or worst best example, I don't know, that I can think of is from an NCIS episode that I haven't seen, but I've read about and have seen gifts from. It's where there's a hacker furiously hacking and this other hacker shows up next to her and starts typing on the left side of the keyboard while she types on the right side of the keyboard so they can hack faster. Like... I I love it. It's so wrong, and I should hate it, but it just comes around the other side. But it's terrible. Oh my god, that's so stupid. It's awesome. I think hacking kind of falls into that category a lot, because, I mean, I, 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 I know you well enough to know that you agree with me that Hackers is basically a perfect film. 
Yes, yes, that's actually what I was going to say for the right way to show computer stuff, which is that you throw in some techno babble, you get some basic premises right, and then you just take things far, far past their logical conclusions. I mean, Hackers is a movie where the internet is basically made of CG skyscrapers that you can VR skateboard through. It's where computer viruses that have Cookie Monster eat all your files on this single giant computer screen that the security guy played by Penn Jillette is watching. It's where you can hack a skyscraper's electric grid to use the lights to spell out a sexy message to your girlfriend? Yes, this isn't how computers work, but it's how they should work. But they do also do things like explain how phone freaking actually works. They do, and they talk about risk processors, because risk is good. I, God, I love hackers so much. Where do you stand on sneakers? Uh, sneakers is great, actually, because sneakers, well, okay, so sneakers deals with much lower tech stuff because it's farther in the past, but it's almost entirely accurate, actually, and the characters are largely based on early hackers and phone freakers anyway, so, yeah, that just kind of is what it was like, except with Dan Aykroyd around and stuff. And I know you haven't seen as much leverage as I have, but I, I do need to know your, your official stance on Hardison. It's important. Oh, big thumbs up, obviously. Age of the Geek, baby. So most superhero comics take that second approach. It's really easy to because their worlds are full of this ultra-high-tech alien future sci-fi stuff. So it's basically fine. I mean, when you're talking about bullshit technology, then you can kind of talk about it however you want, as long as you're careful to have the real-world tech words you use vaguely make sense. And they only have to vaguely make sense. So everything Hank McCoy does in the 90s, totally down with it. Works for me. What I really love about it, and I'm coming at this obviously from a different angle because I I know enough to be like, that's probably maybe wrong sometimes. But... What I really love is looking at the ways that future and imaginary tech dates stories. Oh, yeah, totally. Like uh, that old science fiction show, VR5, which was about a character who could hack into people's dreams by calling them up on her modem phone. Well, or like a lot of how the phalanx works. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Oh, man, they would like be some sort of horrible social media conglomerate if they came out now, wouldn't they? That would actually be fascinating. I mean, they were kind of a horrible social media conglomerate back then, too. They just didn't really have those words for it. That's probably true. So, we're an entirely listener-supported podcast. And that support, which allows us to do things like make this show and hack the internet by typing really fast in green on a black background, comes from our listeners. And some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. The microphone goes first today, and I, I, I feel like longtime listeners will already know what I'm about to say, but to a sexy Shinobi Shaw. Wait, wait, wait. If someone becomes evil, they get sexier? I mean, of course I knew that. After all, my sex name tag says evil sexy Shinobi. Mastermind's Victorian brainwashing made Phoenix sexy, but too evil. And my Dark Side Roses made Storm sexy, but not evil enough. There must be some middle ground. You know, ground in the middle of two naked people. 
Maybe if I can find the right level of evil, someone will tell me what sex. I mean, someone will be very villainous, which is obviously my sexy goal. Ryan Kelly, welcome to my home's sex garden. Notice the classy, naked statue. It likes to watch the sex. Would you like to join my good deeds club, Ryan? Just put on this sensual leather good deeds jacket and... Ha-ha! Leather is made from the nude skin of a dead cow, you know. So, now that you're evil, perhaps you could tell me about... Wait, wait, where are you going? At least give the jacket back. Not that I wear clothes very often, but it's the statue's favorite. Or maybe Ethan Q will prove more informative. Ethan, my friend, how would you feel about a game of chess? Just look at the curves on that rook, and the black and white grid of the board, like the marks left by a kink item. Ah, I can see that your competitive spirit is bringing out the darkness hidden under those strong but seductive body parts. Darkness, which means we can talk about the best way to sex up a human person. Wait, what... What does checkmate mean? Is that a sex word? Are we going to mate? Is that related? Come back! We can play charades instead! That is a very sexy game, probably. And let's run as fast as we can to the angry Claremontian narrator. He looked for danger from without, Garrett Rooney. For the traps you were certain Tom Chacho might spring. But it wasn't until you caught a glimpse of yourself in the hall mirror and saw Tom's face staring back that you realized the truth. That the real enemy lay within. It occurs to me, Jay, this episode's going to come out right in the midst of the holiday season at the start of most of it. So, yeah, happy holidays, everybody. Yeah, happy seasonal holidays of your choice to everyone but Garrett Rooney and Tom Chacho. Because you know what you did. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions to every episode. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, it's time for Coco Corbo Awards and Generation X on the Jay and Miles Giant-Sized Winter Special. (laughs) 